Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in another sunny day in an empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Chris Stafford, Chief Executive of Curve Theatre, a state-of-the-art theatre based in Leicester's Cultural Quarter. Chris, hello. Morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming on the program today. Now, uh, normally, we'd go straight into our conversation on leadership. However, considering the extraordinary circumstances we find ourselves living under, I must ask you how the COVID-19 outbreak has affected uh, your operation. Well, it's affected us massively. Um, We are a publicly funded organization, which gives us some reassurances and comfort. But we've now our theatre doors have been closed for almost seven weeks and we've lost 80% of our income. So um, it's very it's a first for probably all of us working in theatre to be working in theatre, but not actually creating or able to stage or make work. Now, uh, do you believe that this is going to have a long-term effect on uh, the theatre industry due to the social market, uh, social um, distancing uh, regulations? It's it's really it's, it's the next few weeks are going to be crucial because I think we're all going to find out an awful lot more. However, um, a lot of talk about the new social distancing measures probably means for most theatres, if not all theatres up and down the country, um, their models will have to go out of the window um, because simply it won't be cost effective to operate social distancing and stage shows, in particular in organisations like Curve, which shows of a particular scale, which uh, come with that scale an awful lot of um, financial risk. So I think it will be an awful long time before theatres are going to be able to resume and operate as normal. And obviously, the key thing for all theatre operators and producers is to offer audiences reassurances of health and safety. And until we have that, until we know we can get a 1,000 people in our buildings and it be a safe environment, I think for many of us, we'll be considering alternatives until that day arrives. Now, do you believe uh, within uh, the theatre industry there is some sort of um, remit uh, to be able to create uh, artwork uh, based on this outbreak? Uh, it's, it's, It's interesting. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day, and I think Naturally, there will be some responses to the outbreak, and and that's absolutely understandable. Artists will be considering the world in which we're living in, the impact that everything's having on society, and naturally that will fuel work. However, I'm also mindful that once we all get through this, I'm not sure if audiences will want to come and see stories of COVID-19 on our stages, and I think audiences will want to see... um, work that's going to take them away from the experience over the last god knows how long it will be by the time we're through it all um but also popular entertainment as well as dramas as well as serious matters that have always attracted audiences to theatres um but i'm not sure a huge volume of covid19 creative output on our stages is necessarily what audiences will want at this moment in time i think in a few years time Absolutely. I think there's going to be some fantastic stories that people will want to go and see and see some of their experiences reflected on the stage. But I think straight away, 
I suspect audiences want to get back to theatres being telling stories in which um, they might be familiar with or new stories that are touching on very, very different themes. Mm. So no one has the appetite for Ibsen's COVID-19? Uh, not at this moment in time, no. But I mean, I can imagine there's going to be a huge volume of, of work generated by it. Absolutely understandable. But I do think that I think audiences are going to want to crave um, uh, escape from it because actually um, the news is operating understandably and quite rightly. Um, it's, it's, it's an evolving news story that's on 24-7 affecting the whole world. And actually, I think audiences will soon want to, when we can come through it, will want to just draw, separate themselves from it, even if it's just for a few months whilst they digest it all. And then who knows, Ibsen COVID-19 may suddenly <laughs> um, be very appealing to some audiences. Well, we might as well move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking a very simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? The word leader means to me uh, is I always see it as being a caretaker. It's a caretaker of vision, a caretaker of ideas, of ambitions, and a good caretaker at that. Um, Somebody um, who a leadership is someone who can galvanize, galvanize and bring everything together with a shared purpose and vision. And how do you achieve that within your organization? Within our organization, very much in the way which I've done throughout my career, is really about providing the right conditions and the right um, resources, really, for people to thrive and drive through. Um, I think leadership, for me, is always around trying to bring out the very best of the people that you're working with and that you're leading. Um, I will always say I'm a generalist. Um, I really make it my job to understand what others do. And I think that's that's really, really important. However, I surround myself with experts who are far better at delivering what they do than I could ever, ever do. So for me, it's about bringing everyone under that shared vision but also providing them with everything they need in order to be truly excellent. Um, and that, that by default means making um, difficult decisions. It means you have to be open. Um, you have to listen. Uh, you have to care massively. Um, and, and, I, and I always think, as I think good leadership, and this is something that I've totally stolen and learned from other people, is around remaining curious. Um, I'm always curious about the world that we're living in, about what influences and affects people. Um, and I'm curious about the colleagues in which I work with, about what, what can they bring to the party at any one time. Um, and I think all of that together enables me and our organization really to be ambitious and to be driving forward um, an, artist, an, an arts organization that is that absolutely strives to be extraordinary. Now, unfortunately, our time together is starting to wear thin. But before um, I uh, get to that point in the uh, conversation, I'd like to just ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Uh, firstly, who inspires you? 
who's who's inspired us. You said who's fired me. Who's inspired you? (laughs) (laughs) Who's inspired me? I have been very, very lucky. I had two incredible mentors, Sarah Weir, who is now director of the Design Council, and Greg Dyke. And both of them have inspired me in very, very different ways. Um, Tenacious leadership, passionate, ambitious, um, and um, infectious leadership. And what sort of advice would you have for the next generation of emerging leaders? I mean, the je- next generation of emerging leaders, I would say, is to is to to to, to spend, find time with people that you do look up to and that you're inspired by, and learn from them. Be open. Um, have humility. Remember, listening is underrated, but it's oh so so important. Take time to listen, and also take time to. Um, percolate ideas. Not a, we all work at different paces and at different levels. And I think actually, it's not a. It genuinely is not a race to the top. Take your time. Find out what leadership truly means to you. And if I asked you to objectively identify the greatest leader, living or dead? Gosh, the greatest leader, living or dead. Uh, I, I think there's, there are, genuinely there are too, too many. I think you look at it um, in everyday life where it's easier to look at the leaders that aren't necessarily the ones that are driving uh, the best ships at the moment. Um, the, I, I forget her name, the um, Prime Minister of New Zealand, I think it is, mm-hmm. uh, who I watched recently on the news and I thought I just thought the way in which she connected with... Um, with uh, citizens was incredibly powerful, which I think we need this at this moment in time is connection. So that was a kind of 30 second whilst during my lunch break on the news. Um, I think then you look at the greats, you look at Gandhi, you look at Nelson Mandela, um, but actually um, I think of leaders, I look at leaders like my parents, my mum and dad, how they, how they led, and they're not leaders of organisations or corporates, um, but they've had to lead our family through very, very difficult times. And I think it's sometimes the figureheads get all the glory, quite understandably, but it's also leadership at all levels that I, I hugely admire and respect. And finally, and most importantly, Noel Coward or uh, Cole Porter? Oh, gosh, now that's very hard because we were just <laughs> about to do Roman Holiday. Um, because we were just about to do Roman Holiday before COVID-19 kicked in, I'm going to go Cole Porter, which is slightly maverick for a theatre producer, um, because I think often one would expect you to say Noel Coward. But having spent months immersing myself in in, in that incredible catalogue, um, I'm going to go Cole Porter. It is quite prolific, Cole- isn't it? <laughs> It is it is extraordinary, and actually, um, one of the great sadnesses on a personal level is to, is for us to draw a line temporarily under Roman Holiday because that catalogue is just blowing. And actually, mm. I was so buoyed up about introducing a new generation who may not be familiar with that work to the incredible work of Cole Porter. So, so I'm going to go Cole Porter. Now, uh, unfortunately, our time is up. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Curve Theatre? The next 12 months for Curve Theatre is remaining ambitious, remaining focused, but also being very pragmatic, leading and steering us through recovery, that we have a very real place in our community to bring our communities through 
will help bring our communities through what currently is happening to us. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the program today, and you have to come back on the show when things get back to some semblance of normalcy. Uh, Chris, thank you. Thank you. That was Chris Stafford, Chief Executive of Kerr Theatre. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final. Sir Jeff Hurst, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me who realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago. 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, of that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only 
uh, about eight months older than me. He graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh... A, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing 
um, only a few games before I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final and it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Um, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. Our, so I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had we were very I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals uh, we had some great players but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with you know over the years and Jeff I've got to ask and I'm, I'm not making this up I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both they're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's." Uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so, 
I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance around, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey, or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um... Uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, that you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think, um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, uh, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. 
some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, good they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back on an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I... when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. And there was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was 
a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly. Uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership, all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.